Hello, Pennsylvanians. I'm Bill Mintines. I recently wrote a profile for the Sentinel newspaper about Steve Bloom, the well-respected former Pennsylvania State House representative for the 199th District from 2010 to 2018. Steve and his family have lived in North Middleton Township for many years, and the Sentinel thought that readers would like to get an update on what Steve has been doing since running unsuccessfully for a U.S. congressional seat in 2019. I conducted this telephone interview with Steve in December of 2020. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Total running time is about 30 minutes. And by the way, did you know that a subscription for home delivery of the printed Sentinel newspaper comes with full access to the Sentinel's digital products? Of course, digital-only subscriptions are also available. Just go to cumberlink.com members join for more details. Sign up today. Here's the interview. It starts with Steve discussing how long he's lived in North Middleton Township. My wife and I moved here as newlyweds when I was starting uh, to attend the Dickinson School of Law. Okay. So okay. we moved here right after both graduating from Penn State and getting married. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, uh, you know, we love the area. We mm-hmm. hope we were going to be able to stay and it worked out extremely well. Some people may just not be familiar with who you are. You know, I mean, they know what you've accomplished and you've accomplished a lot, but they may not know, you know, other things about you and your views on things. Really, my first question is, you know, growing up, what were your major influences as a young person that then led you into the careers that you've had? My parents were both politically aware, and so I was always to some degree aware of the political arena. So that shaped an interest in current events and news and those kind of things, which I've had since I was a kid. Role model-wise, really the strongest role models for me were my two grandfathers, one of whom was an attorney and one of whom was a medical doctor. They both were inspirations to me in terms of, you know, that I could do something that would be important and make a difference and help help make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, given my... um my distaste for blood and guts and gore and my interest in reading and writing and speaking, I chose the path of going to law school and decided to start a private practice of law here in Carlisle. That's where it originated in terms of uh, influences on me growing up. Did you have any relatives that entered politics at all? Uh, entered politics, no. Um, my mom, though, was, was pretty active with uh, with some political candidates and things. You know, I can remember as a little kid her blowing up balloons in the house, getting ready for some coffees with candidates and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and dropping off things in mailboxes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So you, you were exposed to at least the uh, uh, campaigning to a certain degree of what uh, politicians Correct. had to go through. Yeah, sure. Correct. Oh, that, that can but, be... it wasn't, it, but it wasn't my expectation to actually get into politics. Like I... At, you know, back at that time when I decided to go to law school, I was anticipating practicing law, I, I, which I did, of course, for, you know, 20 some years before actually running for office. As I scanned the literature, Steve, uh, you know, about you, articles written about you, it, it appeared to me that uh, faith and religion are very important to you. And uh, how have how has that influenced your life and your decisions uh, throughout life? I came to faith as a young adult, so I hadn't grown up in a church background. It, it became very important in my life at that time in, in my 20s, and it continues to be and, and something central for my wife and I in our relationship and raising our kids who are all grown now. It, it's been central. Like I, I feel it's the thing that's that's helped me to be able to, as a, a flawed human being like we all are, mm-hmm. 
to be able to make a positive difference and, and to uh, to see the world in a manner that allows for a sense of compassion and duty to try to, to make it better. Do you think, uh, Steve, that our religious freedoms are threatened these days? What What's your perspective on, you know, I know that's a big question, but I mean, do you think that there's a, a threat to the freedom of religion these days? I think there's always going to be a threat to all of our, our fundamental constitutional freedoms. But at the same time, I believe that our founding fathers created a really robust system in order to to make sure that those those rights are protected. And you see it play out. And, and as an elected official uh, for, for that period of eight, I really got to see the, the genius of the founders in creating this the system of checks and balance and also the, the system of federalism so that the power is widely dispersed and you have you have the courts and you have the legislative branch and the executive branch but you also have the structure of each state having its own executive and legislature and judicial branch and the interplay uh, between the states and the federal government and it allows for the the system to work as designed and so you look at the the future of religious liberty litigate in the u.s federal courts where most of that ends up being decided and determined the um the makeup of the courts right now is actually trending more favorably toward protecting religious liberty there's always going to be some disputes about those things and that's that's natural and appropriate in our system whether it's freedom of speech or whether it's freedom of religion or or any of the other enumerated freedoms there's always some dispute around those things but i do have confidence that that the system that our founders designed is ultimately going to continue to protect those liberties the beliefs that you have must have led you to the writing that you've done, you know, the Believer's Guide to Legal Issues and uh, A Patriot's Guide to Religious Freedom, T- two important topics. I was looking, of course, at your at your education. You know, you have the BS from Penn State. You went to Dickinson Law School, and then you, you taught at Messiah. How, how long did you teach at Messiah, Steve? I, I only taught at Messiah for about four and a half years. I, I started doing that in 2007, and I had been practicing law since 1987, so it gives you the timeline. But, so I've been active in law practice. I got the opportunity to start teaching uh, courses in economics at Messiah College because I, my, my undergrad degree was in agricultural economics, mm-hmm. as you probably saw. Right. And I had a strong interest in economics and economic policy. And when the opportunity opened up to, to fill in for a, a professor, it was a gap and it was one of those situations where they asked they were looking for an adjunct to be able to fill in i got the chance to teach a course called the let's see the economics of social issues which is basically mm-hmm. an entry-level micro macroeconomic survey course love love to do that and ended up actually sticking around and teaching essentially a full-time load as an adjunct and for one year i was actually when someone went on sabbatical i was actually a full-time lecturer while still doing law practice in the meanwhile and I look back on that now and I'm like, how in the world did I do that? Because I was up <laughs> I was up so late every night when I was teaching. Yeah. I had to do my prep and write, you know, write exams and right. grade exams and papers and all that. And I was living college student hours again, but I was way too old for it. How, how old were but, you at that at that point? How so old were you? At that point I would have been, I guess, um so I was born in sixty one, late forties. So I was I taught ended up teaching for four and a half years and then when I got elected as state representative in 2010, I thought that it might be possible to at least teach one section of my econ course, but I did that for one semester and it was with the legislative schedule. It was yeah, too much. nearly impossible. Too and much. I, I had to tell them that I just, I just can't do that anymore. How, how old were your kids at that point? At that point, my kids were actually in, in high school and or college. A whole lot of time away from the family and, uh, you know, doing, doing things you may have preferred to be doing, but, uh, 
a good experience anyway. Business law courses too. So it was mm -hmm. like stuff that I really love and care about and was able to, I really enjoyed working with the, with the, the students too. Just great student body there at Messiah College. So what, what then motivated you uh, to run for the state house seat uh, back in, well, I guess that would have been 2009. Yeah, it was 2009. I was... I don't like like I explained earlier. Um, I was always interested in politics. I didn't foresee myself running for office. I just, but I paid a lot of attention. I cared a lot what was happening. And the representative, our state representative at that time, his name was Will Gabig, and he announced that he was not going to seek another term. This is for and the hundred hundred ninety ninth district. For the hundred ninety ninth district, yeah. yeah. He announced he wasn't going to seek another term. And then at first, I just you know saw that just like a, like a news item, but didn't really impact me in particular, other than, you know, I wondered who would run. And then um, one day I I was at the law office and I was at, by this time I was up counsel or I was with the firm of uh, Erwin and McNutt and Carl. And um, I was in the office one morning talking with, with the guy, said, Steve, you really ought to think about running for that, that state representative seat. I kind of laughed at him, but he kind of made it, he made a pitch like why he thought I'd be good at it. I kept thinking about it that day and by the end of that day, I came home and I talked to my wife about it, and she's often the person who tells me if my an idea I have is crazy and you know, I shouldn't pursue it, <laughs> yeah. which has happened many a time. But this time, she was like, yeah, you should. And so, I, okay, well, this is strange. Okay. And then I kept thinking about it, and I talked to my pastor, you know, some trusted friends, and everybody was the same. Like, there, there were all people who would not be afraid to tell me no if they thought something was stupid. They were all like, yes, you should do it. And at that point, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And mm -hmm. Ultimately, um, I ran in what turned into a seven-way Republican primary for that seat, and it was contentious. It was intense. Hmm. Some of the folks were were politically savvy in terms of having held other offices or were working with professional consultants and whatnot. And hmm. I basically had a, a team of volunteers and and you know my own kids designing lit pieces and stuff like that. <laughs> all in all, it it was an intense seven-way primary. Ended up uh, that I that I pulled it out thanks to the, the amazing team of volunteers that I had. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, of course, there was a fall race against um, Fred Baldwin, who was the Democratic candidate, mm -hmm. uh, a good guy. And we're, you know, we're still friendly. Like, I didn't, we didn't hate each other or anything, but we disagreed on a lot of policy matters. Right. But I, I, I beat him, and, and uh, that's how I ended up Interesting. elected to the state house. What, um, that was at a time, the, 2010, when conservatives took really full control of the legislature, back then. So, you know, you kind of got uh, ushered right in to a time when, you know, conservatism was, was very strong. Did you realize that at the time? Uh, did you see that as a wave that would continue for some time to come? Yeah, like we, in 2010, um, as, you, as you indicated, the, the PA Senate had been in Republican hands, but the, the governor and the state house were both in Democratic hands that time. So with that election of 2010, the Republicans took the majority in the House and elected Tom Corbett, a Republican, as, as governor. So there was a lot of energy and enthusiasm around that, the sense of opportunity to execute some policy objectives that would really help uh, bring about opportunity and prosperity for Pennsylvanians. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of lot of optimism and energy at that mm -hmm. time. So would you consider yourself a lifelong Republican? Uh, what's your political no, persuasion? No, I, I, would, I wouldn't consider myself. I mean, I, I am a Republican now, but um, I actually switched my registration from grew up in a Democratic household. So as a, as an 18-year-old, when I first registered up through my 20s, I was a Democrat. So what, what changed your minds? I know you were a young man at that point, but was it just that uh, your values dictated that uh, things 
at least within Pennsylvania and possibly the country, were not heading in the right direction? As I began to get a little bit more maturity and, and understand the way the world worked, uh, for example, my law practice, I worked with many, many small businesses. I did mostly business law work. And so I saw the uh, the adverse impact that overtaxation and overregulation was having on the ability of to start and grow businesses and create jobs and invest in Pennsylvania. I saw how, in many cases, the government was not just a neutral arbiter, but was actually hostile toward uh, people who were trying to 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 run businesses. Mm-hmm. And so I on the, the kind of that practical side, I was I was very frustrated and was and became uh, pretty zealous for the idea to, to reduce. And I, I still believe this to this day, we need to reduce unnecessary regulations, we need to maintain a competitive structure, all those things that are necessary to allow our state to compete and create the jobs that we need for people to, to thrive and grow in our state. Mm. I also during that time, it was a time of, you know, my sort of maturing beliefs around my Christian faith, and I became strongly pro-life. And so that that also helped make the decision easy for me that that um, given my values, my life experience, and also my understanding of economics and yeah. how, how important free market economics is to the opportunity for the masses to permanently rise from poverty to prosperity, yeah. all that kind of combined for me to to fit the, the mold of a conservative, which is which is what I am and what I still am, what I was then and what, what I still am now. Your kids were still relatively young. What what impact did your eight years in that role have on them and your family in general? Kids were old enough. They weren't they weren't in that place where they need you to be, you know, at home all the time with them. Um, by the time I ran, I guess my son was already in college and my, I guess my, my, actually my son and my daughter were both actually in college at that time. My, my youngest was still in high school. And so, um, they got involved to, to one degree or another with the campaign. My son, the least, cause he was, he was pursuing, he was, he's an engineer and he was pursuing the end of his college career, getting, you know, getting a job as an engineer and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. My daughter, who was a communication media communications major at that time at, at um, Asbury University in Kentucky. She helped, again, as I mentioned, design uh, a lot of our brochures and flyers for the campaign. Nice. My younger daughter, Katie, and some of her friends would, would often help with knocking on doors and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I always remember at the end of that that hard-fought first primary campaign uh, when we had won and we were starting to clean up and put away all the huge you know, we had tables with piles of paper and things on them and everything. And <laughs> yeah. Katie was like, I missed the campaign. <laughs> she missed it, you know, because it was yeah. exciting. It was dramatic. It was like every day there was excitement and new challenges. And so right. it was, but it was a positive experience overall. Has that motivated and any of the kids to think about or pursue po- uh, politics? I don't know. Not, not so far, but, yeah. you know, uh, it's one of those things where, I never expected to, and I did it at, yeah. at that age, and, and who knows what they may do in the future. Well, they saw it firsthand, so, I mean, they know, well, at least they know what a house seat, you know, takes, and, uh, you know, your your experience mm-hmm. doing that. So, revving, revving up to 2017, you were named one of the uh, 50 over 50 most distinguished citizens of Pennsylvania. I've got to think, although that's the question, that that must have influenced you to say, huh, you know, I'm doing pretty good at this Pennsylvania House seat. Maybe I should run for U.S. Congress? Yeah, and, and again, it wasn't quite that way. It was more like I always, the only reason I ever ran to begin with is I felt like I could make a difference. I felt like I could be a positive force in the legislature. And I would ask myself that, the term, and every time before I would run for re-election, I would say, you know, do honestly ask myself, are you making a positive difference? And I felt I could answer that yes. When our congressman at that time, 
uh, Lou Barletta announced that he would not be running for re-election, it was almost like deja vu at that first moment I had eight years before, where mm. all of a sudden uh, there was this opportunity to potentially have a larger sphere of positive influence, but it wasn't going to be easy to attain. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not easy to run for Congress. Everyone knows that. No. And so at first, uh, quite honestly, I said I wasn't going to do it. I planned to just continue to, to, to run again for another term in the state house. But I kept thinking about it, and there were a couple ups and downs where, where it turned out for, for a little while, it seemed like the seat was going to open up, and then it wasn't. But ultimately, when it became very clear that the congressman was not going to run for re-election, my wife and I again had one of those very sobering mm-hmm. moments where we had to make a decision. Right. I knew that if I ran for Congress, I would not run simultaneously to retain my state, the, the state representative oh, right. seat for the 199th. I could legally, but I knew myself well enough to know that if I'm going to do it, I have to be all in. So there's going to be a lot of risk, a lot of downside risk that, you know, if I if I lost the race for Congress, I would no longer have a a state house seat to fall back on. Uh, Again, with with consultation, uh, especially in particular with some other folks in the in the congressional world, I finally came to the point where I felt like it wasn't necessarily an option to consider run for Congress, Mm -hmm. but a duty to consider Mm -hmm. running for Congress. And so. Well, I've got to think that that attitude and belief that you had showed through. I mean, obviously, it showed through in your first run for the House seat. And I'm thinking people who elected you then saw that same enthusiasm and, uh, quite honestly, honesty, you know, at that point probably was was needed, you know, generally in the Congress. I'm not saying you right, know, for that right. particular and person. I, yeah. And so ultimately, like, so I made the decision, yes, I'm going to run and I'm going to be all in. So the, at that time, the district that I was running in included most of Cumberland County, including virtually all of my state legislative district. It included almost the entire Harrisburg area media market. And then it went up the, the Susquehanna River up toward uh, Wilkes-Barre up mm-hmm. into, uh, all the way to Wyoming County. And it was not going to be an easy race. Like this was, you know, as I said, you're running for Congress. It's a, it's a seat that's likely going to be a Republican seat by the demographics. But there are a number of very qualified, very well-resourced individuals seeking right. that seat. And so I knew that it would be competitive, but I felt in you know, working with, with my team and evaluating all the information we had at hand, felt like there was a realistic shot yep. to potentially win the thing. So we entered into the campaign and began working hard from tw- uh, fall of 2017 all the way through into the um, January-February timetable of 2018, when suddenly the, there was a, a case filed in the, in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, or in the Pennsylvania courts, made its way to the state Supreme Court, and suddenly we found that the map of the districts had been drastically changed. And I'm talking drastically yeah. we were the the first district that i was running in originally planning to run with not you know it had my media market it had it had had the the congress the the state house district i had been representing and it consisted of nine counties the new district placed my house on the opposite end of a new district that ran the other direction so it ran west and south out of my for the most part cutting off almost the entire state house district and not including like the the core of the harrisburg area media market and it was 10 counties. So at that point, it was another moment of reassessment. Mm-hmm. But again, there was a, a, a reasonable path. It wasn't going to even be more challenging than the other district, but still a reasonable path. And it turned into was an eight-way Republican primary in this yeah. new district. But with a short timetable to to get to know these new counties and try to try to make an impact. So everything became compressed and difficult. And it was mm-hmm. very long. It was almost it was out to Westmoreland County. So wow. it was it was just to travel the district was like an all day affair. You know, we, we ran a great campaign again, 
uh, great volunteers arose, um, great allies. It was it was a huge blessing. The experience was 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 extremely positive. But at, at the end of the day, you know, Congressman Joyce was the winner in that. Right. I came third out of the eight. It was all we were in the top tier. There were like four of us in the top tier of finishers. Right. Right. Very close. It went back and forth during election night. And yeah, so it was really... one of those things where you felt like trusted God that he didn't ever. I didn't feel he had ever promised me that I would win if I entered the race, mm-hmm. but I did feel called to enter the race. And so I, I felt a sense of peace that, okay, well, we gave it our best shot and we sure. didn't make it. And now we'll see what he has for us next. One of the interesting things I read that you said was that the system, and of course the election system, favors self-funders and PACs. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, the way that the way the the way the the laws around campaign contributions are set up, absolutely, it yeah. makes it easier for a person who has access to direct wealth to enter a race. It's just it's the reality of our, our system right. as it stands right. today. But you know, what, but right. I I, I want to make sure it's I don't want I don't want anyone to sense that there's not hope because again, I a candidate like myself running for the state house. You know, I was not I was neither rich or or particularly well connected. And it can still, you know, in America, you can still win by running a good campaign. Kind of revving up, Steve, to 2020, the House election, strong win for Republicans over the Democrats, I guess, unexpected to a to a certain extent. Was was that sort of a deja vu moment for you? You know, when back in 20, uh, 2009, 2010, you know, there was a sweep of conservatism at that point. And uh, I think here in Pennsylvania now in 2020, conservatives and Republicans are feeling pretty good about that. That just leads me to, to think that, well, given what Steve has been through in politics, have you had any thoughts of running for a House seat, another House seat in 2022? I do not. I, I, I'm not interested in doing that. Um, I've said that, you know, People ask me all the time, are you going to run for office? Are you going to run for office again? My answer is always the same. I I have no plans to do so. I'm not saying never in my life would I, Mm -hmm. but I'm not seeking the opportunity and I have no plans to do so. You know, you've been quoted as saying, you know, I'm a movement conservative in line with traditional conservatives. And I'm wondering, given the present political climate, particularly the Republican political climate, do you think that the party needs to change or is changing in a direction that you think it should be what, what's your thoughts on that i work now as a as a um, i'm part of a, a 501c3 charitable organization that pursues free market legislative policy at the state level here in pennsylvania so from my perspective i know uh, most of the individuals who either got re- to the state house and senate and or I'm, I'm meeting the ones that are the new ones. There's a few new ones in both chambers. But I know that the vast majority of those folks are, as what you just described, those same kind of words, like a, a movement conservative, a traditional conservative, someone who believes in, in the free market as the best opportunity to allow people to, to, again, move from poverty to prosperity permanently. And so fighting for that cause, I'm very pleased with the ideological positions taken by folks in the Pennsylvania State House and Senate around the issues I care about mm-hmm. and that my organization fights for. So I'm extremely optimistic about what we have ahead of us here in this upcoming new legislative session and our ability to create opportunities for, for kids to get a, a great education, regardless of whatever zip code they live in, uh, to help businesses get out from under burdensome regulations and taxes, uh, to, to help uh, work on issues like even helping with, for example, welfare reform, reforming the state budget process, making sure that, that 
Pennsylvanians are live Pennsylvania, the, the state government is living within its means, just like families have to. Um, there's so many really important issues that are truly going to impact the quality of our lives and our kids' lives and our grandchildren's lives in Pennsylvania that we now have an opportunity to advance uh, in part because of the, the result of this, this election here in November with respect to the state house and state senate. But let's talk about the Commonwealth Foundation uh, for a bit uh, and your position as a VP there. The mission statement, uh, the Commonwealth Foundation transforms free market ideas into public policies so all PA can fl- all Pennsylvanians can flourish. You just you just said that, of course. To the I guess non-informed person, Steve, it sounds to me like somebody may say, "Oh, boy, that that sounds like a lobbying group to me." Is is that fair? I mean, or is there are there more words that people need to understand what the Commonwealth Foundation is is all about? We do exist to you just described. We exist to essentially be a watchdog to make sure that, to the extent um, possible, that that the policy enacted by the state of Pennsylvania is free market economic policy that helps to give kids opportunity, to give entrepreneurs and job creators opportunity to invest, to allow folks to be independent, uh, to have prosperity. So we, we fight uh, in the capital. That's what we, we are advocates. I mean, that's what we do. We're not, not by any means ashamed by that. We're, that's yeah. what we, why we exist, is to try to influence the state government to enact sound policy that will, that will advance those objectives. You've taken a real strong stance on education. And given our present pandemic and the on-again, off-again classroom times, what are your thoughts on that? And what should education be doing going forward? It's a real tumultuous time. Well, one of the things that, that I believe is extremely important, and it's one of the, the, the time of an opportunity to get an excellent education, again, no matter where they happen to live in terms of zip code. Unfortunately, we see in our education system today, we see uh, kids often being penalized because of the, the, the place where they happen to live growing up. And, and, and especially in Pennsylvania, in our urban centers, uh, a, lot of, a lot of kids who are really being deprived of a quality education of the type that, that, a, that a student here in the Cumberland Valley might get. You know, we, have, we have in our area here in, the, in the, the Carlisle area, the Cumberland County area, really excellent schools, really excellent public schools, and a nice choice of alternative schools as well, and private schools um, and, and other opportunities. We have a lot of homeschoolers. There's a, there's a diverse educational opportunity here, and kids are mostly getting a good education, even, you know, even despite some of the challenges of the pandemic. But for kids in some of our urban centers, they, they are really being left behind and not getting that same kind of opportunity. So things that are crucial are programs like the uh, EITC, the Educational Improvement Tax Credit, and the OSTC, the Opportunity Scholarship Tax Credit. Um, that's that's a, a policy that the Commonwealth Foundation fought for some years ago. It was first enacted, and we've been fighting hard every year to expand it so that more kids can get access to the, the help they need to get scholarships so that they can attend schools that will actually be able to educate them rather than disastrously failing and dangerous public schools in their neighborhood that simply aren't serving the students well. We fight for the opportunity to have a robust charter school alternative, including cyber charters, which in Mm. particular in the pandemic have proven to be leading the way in terms of how do we educate kids when they can't actually be in a classroom for safety reasons or health reasons. And so we have a thriving charter section in, sex sector in Pennsylvania, but it, it could actually be much bigger. There's a, there's a lot of um, demand for not only for um, charter schools, um, for other other alternative modes of, of educating kids is going to work during these difficult times of, of restrictions and shutdowns and so forth. So mm-hmm. you have a lot, a lot of parents exploring more um, 
either homeschooling or what they're now calling pod-based learning, things that allow for students to still get a good education despite sometimes not being able to be in a traditional classroom. So that kind of flexibility is what creates opportunity for our kids to keep learning even in these these tough times. You wrote an op-ed last month about uh, shadow budgets and how they could be used for uh, filling some or all of the uh, $3 billion state budget deficit. And I'm wondering, uh, does that also, in your mind, apply to uh, helping to fund educational budget deficit, or uh, was that was that implied? Well, the shadow budget in particular references, there are, there are a number of, there are actually dozens of, of funds in Pennsylvania that are maintained by the state treasurer where funds come in through various statutory authorizations. And the funds sit in these in these these special accounts where they're not necessarily drawn down every year. There's a purpose for them that was originally set forth, but they're not they're not always used. And in some cases, it's it's it, the money goes in and out just like you would imagine it would in a situation like that. And, and that's maybe not ideal because it's not it's not part of the general appropriations process every year. It doesn't get the full debate that it, that spending ordinarily would, but at least it it kind of makes sense in terms of money goes in, money goes out. It's fulfilling some purpose. But with with any with a number of these special funds, there's actually money that sits in there forever and doesn't get used, and it's not obligated toward any particular use. It just sits there. It's it's proverb. It's like the proverbial uh, money you find in your couch. Like it's just sitting there, <laughs> not being productively deployed. Right. And so we've been talking about this issue for several years, and it's it's actually an issue we brought to the attention of the legislature, and a number of the members have taken it and really run with it now. And it's it's gaining more traction each year that, that it makes sense, especially in tough times, that before we would go back and, and ask the taxpayers to pay more in taxes to fill a deficit or before the Commonwealth would go and borrow money at great expense, burdening future generations to fill a deficit, why not access that shadow budget, those those funds that are that include money that just sits there and doesn't doesn't actually get used and can actually go a long way toward closing those budget deficits. Yeah. To their credit, in this last budget they did finally Past, they did access a number of those, not as not as much as we had recommended at the Commonwealth Foundation, but uh, certainly they did access some of that to help close the the gap. You know, it's it's one of those things that it's going to be there again next year, and we'll have the, the same. It's an educational process, really. Right. I won't call it an argument, but we're educating members to understand. You know, here's this money. Um, it's not being deployed. Why don't we deploy it toward our current right. need rather than then ask the taxpayers to stretch for more when when they're having such a hard time right now. So you're optimistic about uh, the next budget cycle that uh, perhaps you know they can balance it by using some of those budgets. Right, and that's not it's not the cure all for everything. It's just one of the one of the factors that that the legislature needs to look at. And to their credit, they are looking at it now. Right. So here's my last question for you, Steve. Uh, what what would it take for you to consider uh, another political office? Now, I'm not saying a House seat or a congressional seat, but uh, what what would it take for you to seriously consider another another go at it? No, I am I'm not even thinking in that way. So you know, I I right now am absolutely honored, and my um my gratitude is so high for the opportunity I had to serve in the state house for eight years. I am very thankful for our current representatives, for Representative Glime, who has the seat that I used to hold, uh, for Representative Ecker and Representative Kiefer and Rothman and those around us. We have we have outstanding legislators in our area, Senator Regan, Senator Ward. That's not 
not my agenda. My agenda is to make the continue to make the biggest positive difference I can. And working with the Commonwealth Foundation, it's a, a very credible organization, a growing organization, and it's been recognized even in the last two years nationally twice for important advancements of policy in Pennsylvania, work we've done that's been very influential. That's where I want to be. I want to be where I'm making the biggest possible positive difference. Mm-hmm. And with Commonwealth Foundation, we're doing that. Mm-hmm. On my my everyday work now, um, in my role at CF, I probably end up talking more to the legislative leaders in both the House and Senate and rank and file members of a, across the state than I did when I was a member myself. And so I'm I'm just absolutely grateful to have this opportunity to continue to have a positive influence. And that's my test. That's my litmus test. Mm-hmm. My wife and I look at each other seriously and ask this, like, are you making a positive difference? And I can answer that with a resounding yes. And right. I'm excited to be part of this organization that is helping to make a positive difference in Pennsylvania and part of an amazing team.